You're listening to the Safety of Work podcast, episode 25. Today we're asking the question, why don't workers use reporting systems? Let's get started. Hey everybody, my name's Drew Ray and I'm from the Safety Science Innovation Lab at Griffith University. This is the Safety of Work podcast, but David Proven isn't with me today because I'm speaking directly with the author of the paper we're talking about. Today's question actually comes to us a little bit indirectly via Andrew Barrett's Together Forum at safetyontap.com. I connected on the forum with Dr. Tanya Hewitt, a longtime podcast listener, and it turns out, a researcher who focuses on the interface between the safety of work and the work of safety. The subject we're looking at is voluntary hazard and incident reporting systems. We're not talking about accidents here, but about the little things that go wrong, near misses or dangerous details that show that things are not as safe as they could or should be at the front line. Many organisations would like to be able to learn and improve from these little things, but systems to collect hazards and minor incidents seldom work as well as we'd like them to. This is a really good illustration of the disconnect between the lived experiences of frontline workers and the well-intentioned but awkward ways in which safety practitioners try to help. So the paper we've chosen is called Fix and Forget or Fix and Report, a qualitative study of tensions at the front line of incident reporting. The authors of the paper are Tanya Ann Hewitt and Samia Chen, Hewitt was a PhD candidate at the time of publication and is now Dr. Hewitt, Professor Krem researches organisation studies and seems to specialise in studying professions and professional work. The paper was published in 2015 in BMJ Quality and Safety. That's a high quality, very practitioner focused journal specialising in patient safety and safety of healthcare staff. Here's the interview. So, Tanya, thank you for talking to me about this paper, Fix and Forget or Fix and Report. Oh, it's my pleasure, Drew. So can you tell me a little bit about your PhD? I think you wrote this paper fairly early on when you were officially enrolled. It was actually the second paper of my PhD. But uh, just a little bit of background on my PhD. I actually don't have a a background in this from my uh, bachelor's. I, uh, I have a bachelor's in physics and a master's in physics as well. So I changed direction once I started to go to some talks and uh, learning experiences where I noticed that people were uncomfortable when they started to get around topics that were not so technical. When people were talking about leadership and communication and uh, things that might well have been um, of interest in looking at an event or a near miss. The speakers often wanted to get back to computer systems and laser systems and things like this. And I thought, well, isn't that fascinating? While I did have a background more on the technical side, I thought there's probably more to be gained by looking at the social side of things. So that was kind of my impetus for starting to look at this this type of area. So how did you go about finding a supervisor given your own background? I actually went supervisor shopping. So I started by um, looking at what the supervisors had published 
and reading a lot of the the type of materials that they had done. And then, you know, frankly, cold calling or cold emailing professors to see if they were taking on graduate students. And one of the authors on this paper is your or was your PhD supervisor? That's correct. Yes. Samia Shreem. She's, uh, she has a background in organizational management, which her expertise was actually in uh, mergers and acquisitions. But she had an interest in healthcare. And when I had approached her on looking at incident reporting systems in healthcare, she was very, very keen. And how did you get the entry in to talk to everyone at the hospital? So that was fortuitous. There was uh, a principal investigator at the hospital who had already secured a grant to look at patient safety. And so there, um, that principal investigator was actually starting to look for researchers who would be interested in partnering with him on this, on this study. So that, that's how that connection was made. So there's you and Samia who are both interested in looking at incident investigation systems. There's the investigator at the hospital interested in patient safety. And you decided to look at the systems not by hopping on the computer and looking at all of the accident reports or incident reports that were recorded, but by going out and finding all of the people who hadn't reported into the system. Can you tell me a little bit about sort of how you decided that that was the research question and... So we were actually, I don't know if we were driven by, you know, who is reporting and who isn't reporting. It was, uh, healthcare is a very difficult, uh, especially in these days, I, 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 you know, sympathize with anybody who's doing this type of a study today, because, you know, with the emphasis of the healthcare systems globally focusing on, you know, fighting COVID-19, I'd be surprised if this kind of study could be done right now. But healthcare systems typically are not uh, running uh, in, a, in a relaxed state. They, you know, it's very difficult to try to talk to practitioners in, in order to do this type of a study. So it was really availability that was driving who we were able to speak with. And it just so happened that in the people that we spoke with, and that, that was almost as random a sample really as you could find because we were just looking for who was available at a certain time. And, um, and some people had extensive reporting experience and others had zero reporting experience. So it was just uh, the way that this so-called availability uh, sample was able to afford us this kind of information. And how does that work practically? Were you sitting in an office in the hospital, sending emails, trying to get meetings? Or were you sitting in the break room, just grabbing people as they came off shift? So a bit of both. Um, it depends. So we started with a nursing manager and uh, spoke with the nursing manager, who then would help us talk to somebody else. So snowball sampling is a is a technique where you would ask the person whom you just interviewed, is there anybody else that I should be speaking with? And um, that was used heavily in this study just, uh, you know, just to be able to get people because we didn't, act, we didn't have, we didn't go to HR and have a list of everybody who was available or who was scheduled on that shift. So some of them were in break rooms. Some of them were at the nursing station. Some of them were in doctor's offices. 
Some of them were in the cafeteria. So I, yeah, it was uh, a, a mix of all of the above. And were you specifically asking people whether they reported things and why they didn't? Or was it some other question that just revealed that this was the interesting question that you wanted to answer? So we tried to get, um, the focus of the study was incident reporting systems. We were interested in reporting behavior. So we did ask questions about reporting. Did they know that there was a reporting system? Did they ever use the reporting system? When would they use the reporting system? And um, a lot of probing was uh, part of this study. So the the interviewee would reveal information, which would then lead to the next question that we would ask. So if people were uh, very uh, seasoned users of the reporting system, we'd want to really understand how did they become seasoned users? Was it because they were mentored by somebody? Were they... Did they just see the value in it what, or, or what were their motivations versus people who, I mean, I've reported maybe two things ever and, uh, and we'd want to try to explore that. Like what, what was worthy of being reported was a, was a very interesting uh, question for us. So I'm interested in these seasoned users. They, they don't come up a lot in this particular paper. Uh, what sort of things are they reporting and what, why, why are they finding the system useful or part of their life? So in, in this paper, this was uh, restricted to the first part of the study. I had looked at another area of the hospital in obstetrics for the second part of the study. This first part was in general internal medicine. And obstetrics has a much longer history with reporting than uh, general internal medicine. It was more of a discipline-driven one than, uh, than a hospital-driven history. And uh, that alone accounted for a lot in terms of the use of the reporting system in obstetrics. So, so when, when you say discipline-driven, you mean it, they just like considered it part of their work to use the reporting system? So when we explored this more, more in depth, we actually realized that <laughs> delivering babies is a highly litigious field. And the, the field of, of obstetrics and gynecology had recognized that if they didn't get a handle on this, they might not be able to survive as a, as a practice because uh, the, the lawsuits were just going to uh, bankrupt the, the entire discipline. So that, that was a very interesting um, finding of uh, why reporting systems were introduced so early there. So it's not that the reporting system helps them directly with patient safety. It's that they report because the record keeping is a defensive act that builds up a record that they can use in case of blame or litigation. Now, it depends perhaps on who you talk to. So another phenomenon we were looking at is the difference between doctors and nurses reporting. The doctors were far more on the litigation and protection and professional liability side um, the nurses were far more on being able to help my patient, being able to uh, make things better. I can remember uh, a number of nurses seeing much value in using the reporting system because they saw things happening once they reported them. So, so that sort of leads into then these people who don't report. And correct me if I'm mischaracterizing, but there are sort of two things that are going on here. One of them are things that are so 
infrequent or that people at least consider to be once off, that there's no point in reporting it because, well, it happened once, I fixed it, it's never going to happen again. And then the other one is things that are so chronic that there's no point in reporting them. Well, these are just a normal part of life. I work around them. What's the point in reporting every single time it happens? Yeah, that's a that's a good characterization. Yes, that's right. So, so could you tell me a little bit about each of those things? So with the ones that just seem to happen once, it seems to be that people thought that if there was no harm arising and the situation had been successfully resolved, then there was just no no utility or no point in reporting? That's right. There, a lot of the people who um, gave us that information believed the reporting system was in order to get something fixed so that, say, there's a mechanical issue with a ventilator or an infusion pump. That's when you use the reporting system. So you can. So that's the mechanism of communication to get somebody up here to fix it. But if and that that was the mental model they had of the reporting system, as opposed to um, some other people who also were in that paper who recognized that this can contribute to organizational learning. Therefore, even if the pro- the immediate problem was solved, this fix A is only known to me. Maybe other people have to know what what the, this fix is. And B, if there is a problem maybe I'm not the only one encountering it. So it really should be into the organizational repository so that this can be looked at from a a wider perspective. So so there's a strong hint in what you're saying, and I I think this is a fair characterization of how a lot of people look at incident reporting systems, that the system is there for the organization to learn and the individuals using it are sort of contributing to that organizational learning. And so... There's, it's like almost like optional extra work that they have to do. They're not seeing an immediate benefit themselves, but they're feeding into something that ultimately helps the whole organisation. Is that how the patient safety people at the hospital saw the system as something that is about organisational learning? I think that's fair to say that that was the messaging. Um, but as you, I think, recognised, um, this um, was often seen as a duplication of effort by a lot of the people who were expected to report because a lot of the what they would be reporting would be put into the patient chart anyway. If something bad happened to the patient, it's going to be in the patient chart. If something didn't happen to the patient, maybe that wouldn't be put into the patient chart, but nothing happened, so it doesn't really matter. There was a large severity bias going on with a lot of people who, with whom we spoke. It, depending on how bad this was would determine whether or not this would get uh, into into the incident reporting system. So, so your experience as a practitioner as well as a researcher extends beyond healthcare, as I understand it. Do you think this is something that's particular to healthcare? This focus, or do you think this is something that affects incident reporting systems more generally? I suspect this is a common phenomenon. Uh, throughout any any place that is using incident reporting systems. I don't think uh, a lot of the the findings that we had here, the professional pride and all this kind of stuff that, that um, is around, all of these influences that are around incident reporting systems don't hold in other areas. I think these are quite applicable to other areas. So you mentioned professional pride there. That's something that I missed on my initial reading of the paper. Could you say a little bit more about that one? 
So, especially in this particular subtopic of fixing problems, a lot of people, a lot of、uh, professionals, that's where they derive their professional pride from being able to fix problems. And if then, organizationally, this is communicated as well, you know, this problem has to be commuted so, so that we can fix the problem, not not you. This is very、uh, poses a dilemma to the practitioner who doesn't necessarily want to divulge that there was a problem because I was able to fix it. You know, there's no reason for them to come over to us here where we have this under control. It, so I'm going to throw something at you where I suspect I already know the answer, but I'm interested in your take on it. A lot of organisations have tried to fix that one by changing it from an incident reporting system to a lessons learned system, where people are encouraged to share the solutions that they've found to problems as a way of taking away that sort of bias. Where they're you're not reporting a problem, you're telling me about your own expertise and how you fix something, and it doesn't seem to work any better. <laughs> Do you have an idea for why that might be the case? A lot of these types of systems. Come with either explicit or implicit incentives that can drive behavior in certain ways, and I、uh, I fear that a lot of the efforts put into these types of systems, seeing them as the be all end all and you know turnkey solutions, miss that they are deeply embedded in the socio technical environment in which they're being used, and.、Um, I, I think you'd come into、uh, just similar things, like well, what, what was a problem that you fixed, kind of thing. Like, a, well, that wasn't a solution, and you know, you could get into a lot of the same kinds of、uh, debates that currently go on. Well, that wasn't really an incident; it shouldn't have gotten into the system in the first place. So, ha- having spent quite some time looking at these systems, both in this paper and in your follow-on work. Do you think overall that incident reporting systems are valuable and are something that can be redeemed and made to work well? I think that incident reporting systems do have value, but I don't know how many of them are designed to capitalize on the value that incident system, incident reporting systems could have. What I mean by that is a lot of incident reporting systems lack. What I see is an absolutely fundamental property, and that is、uh, feedback loops. There is uh, uh, an incredible amount of literature talking about the black hole of reporting systems, and if people report into a system that they believe is allowing them to have a voice in making their organization better, and it turns out. To just be、um, some kind of、um, histogram chart that they never know of, that doesn't actually make the the organization better from their perspective. The introduction of a reporting system can actually be worse than not doing it at, at all, because the cynicism that you can introduce by not doing your homework before introducing an incident reporting system can be extraordinarily Difficult to recover from. So that almost suggests that that model that some people had in their heads—that you report things into the incident system to get them fixed. 
might actually be the way you want frontline workers to be thinking about the incident reporting system. As you know, this system is valuable because I know if I put something into it, I'm going to get a response and I'm going to get something fixed. Yes, just so as long as the time sequence isn't so short, because the fix might not be something that, um, you know, the biomechanical engineering is going to come up this afternoon. The fix might be more structural or organizational, and that's not going to be something that's done overnight. But that doesn't mean that the communication with the reporter doesn't have to take place. Just because there isn't going to be a fix tomorrow doesn't mean that the person who took their time and told you what they did shouldn't be communicated with. So, so I don't know if you remember this one, but it might be worth talking about this with a specific example. There's an incident that you mentioned in the paper where a nurse is looking for a swab and she opens swab after swab and they're too dry until she finds one that hasn't dried out that she can use. And because she's got to the point of finding one that she can use, she doesn't report into the reporting system the fact that all of the previous ones were dry. And I think you sort of hint in the paper that that's the sort of thing where she doesn't need it fixed now. She doesn't need to have someone come and immediately give her a swab. She's managed to find one. She can keep going. But possibly there is something that the hospital can learn here so that next time she doesn't experience this frustration. That's exactly right, because maybe this is a procurement issue with uh, vendor loyalty that has to be looked at. Like the, the people who are, you know, having to finish the design kind of thing in, in, um, in Decker's words are often seeing problems that they might not know the solution for. They might not. They, they just know that they have to do something about it. This is an excellent example. And while they might be able to fix it for their world, it, it was disruptive enough such that something didn't work according to the way it should have. Maybe this is worth highlighting to the hospital so that they can get more eyes looking on this from different perspectives. So, so how do you think good feedback would work in that case to encourage people to use the system? Well... The idea that a lot of uh, incident reporting systems don't offer any feedback is, is any feedback might be better than none. But if there can be some kind, one of the ways that I thought could be of help is with the analysis of the incident reporting. So if in the analysis, so I had conceptualized that incident report reporting systems are basically three big blocks: detection, analysis, and learning. If the analysis could take advantage of the person who detected the incident in the analysis, perhaps a lot more can be learned yeah, overall. So that that would be, serve as a, as a feedback mechanism in itself. If the person who reported was involved in the analysis, they would have very a very good understanding of what is being looked at, why it's being looked at, how much time is devoted to to the, my incident kind of thing, and that would give them a very good uh, understanding of of the importance of their report in the first place. So, so the idea would be that nurse would get an email or a message back saying, we've heard your issue and we think it's part of a class of similar problems. 
we're going to invite you along to a session in on a shift in two weeks' time with a bunch of people who've experienced similar things so that we can ha- see if we can analyze and work out what's going on. That would and and the other reporters would be in the same in the same room. That's right with with the facilitator and all, uh, those involved with the ins- analysis of incidents. So if you were giving just one or two pieces of advice to someone who was didn't currently have an incident reporting system and was thinking of introducing one, what would your takeaway message be? So my biggest message for organizations looking at incident reporting systems is to not see them as simple turnkey solutions. They are complex socio-technical constructs and that they should do some homework before they, they start because a little bit of homework might save them a lot of grief. If you're looking at building your own system, my suggestion is to build it backwards. So I had said detection, analysis, and learning. Instead of focusing all of the efforts where currently a lot of uh, organizations do on the computer interface and the drop-down menu and the types of categories and the, you know, the, all of that kind of thing, how about look at the learning part first? What happens if you get information? Say the information that you're asking for is anything. Tell us anything that, you know, we think we should know about the, you know, that is safety related in the organization. Say you get information back such as we have incompetent senior management or we are structured incorrectly or we are not meeting our mission as a organizational, you know, in our organizational priorities. What are you going to do with that? If you don't know how you're going to handle that information, perhaps a, a, a writ large in incident reporting system is not what you really need. Maybe you need a suggestion box. Maybe you need something else. Maybe, you know, maybe... Uh, Or if you are able to do that, if you are able to use that information, be as transparent about the process of how you treat that information as you possibly can. Transparency buys you a lot with this this type of system. This is possibly overgeneralizing about Canadians, but... It was a someone from the Canadian Transport Agency who said a very, very similar thing to me that changed the way I thought about risk assessment. He said, start, start with the decisions you're willing to make and look at what you think are realistic options on the table and then go backwards from there to design your risk assessment process that will help you choose between those options that are on the table. If there's no change you're willing to make, then don't bother doing the risk assessment. Wasn't that fascinating? <laughs> But I, but I do honestly believe that if, if you're looking at introducing an incident reporting system, A, do a little bit of homework first, and B, think about why you want it in the first place. Really have the, the purpose for the, the incident reporting system be central to how you're going about um, introducing it in your organization. So it's a slightly harder one. If you're in an organization that already has an incident reporting system that's been around for a long time and you feel that it's not working well, what would be your advice for the first step to take to try fixing it? So I might uh, start with what I had just said. Why do you have this? Perhaps the reason why you got it 
has long since expired and you and and maybe this is just some kind of a routine thing that you're doing now and you're not even questioning its utility anymore i think uh if if you don't have a use for doing something there's a good that's a good opportunity to question why you're doing it at all if though um, you are getting some value from it but not as much as you might be you could start looking at what instructions are people being given what what capacities are they being given are they are they being trained on the reporting system what are they, how are they being trained what kinds of incidents are you expecting to have in your in your system what are you not expecting to have there's a there's all sorts of who's allowed to report on whom and where and what and all there's all sorts of rules that i've seen for a, a bunch of different reporting systems how complicated do you need to make this be transparent about everything post pressing send on your incident reporting system people should know how their data is being treated they not necessarily you know in in intimate details but they need to have a very good idea of who's allowed to see the data and if there's expiration dates on things and you know the these types of of questions can be asked what how are you analyzing the data what are you giving attention to how are you prioritizing these are other questions that could be very helpful in a stale incident reporting system and then most most importantly if you do have reports coming in and you are analyzing them what are you doing with that analysis are you actually using the information to drive organizational improvements and if you're not you really should question why you have the incident reporting system in the first place so th there's one thing that you say right at the end of the paper you say you've got these fix and forget people who are obviously very practically useful to the organization because they're finding problems they're dealing with them they're getting on with it but you've also got these fix and report people who do the same thing when it comes to resolving the problem but they also use the systems and share the learnings and you've suggested that somehow there's something we can do with finding these people and getting them to informally train other people in the utility of using the system so i am leveraging um heavily on um hall nagel's group eto efficiency thoroughness trade-off system when he describes group eto and talks about everybody being efficient and nobody being thorough he suggests you don't need too many who prioritize thoroughness over efficiency in order to rebalance the system so i was thinking that perhaps in the same spirit if you can have a few of these people ensuring that you you have coverage kind of thing perhaps you'll be able to rebalance the system because you'll have people who are prioritizing reporting um not to the exclusion of of patient care but but ensuring that the organization knows what it needs to know and but that not everybody is is overburdened with filling out incident reports so you don't you don't actually need every incident of fixing to be reported you just need enough of them so that the organization is aware of the problems and can do something about it so one of the possibilities i had suggested in my study is to see if you can get learning potential to be a criteria for reporting what are we actually going to learn from this because if 
as happens uh, in hospitals routinely, um, falls and medication errors are the, the lion's share of your reports. What are you going to learn from this one? Maybe if you have to if you have to have histograms for some reason, well then have histograms, but don't have that interfering with this organizational learning thing. Report into the learning the the organizational learning system things that we can actually learn from. So, was there anything else that you were hoping we were going to talk about in this discussion that we haven't covered so far? In terms of incident reporting systems, probably not. I was. Um, prepared to talk about more general research, but I know that you do that quite well in a lot of the podcasts that I've already heard. So I'm wondering if maybe that's not worthy of discussion here. Uh, well, what if, what if we, we throw in a, a question to help uh, re- researchers who are listening to this? You've spent obviously a long time and several studies on this project. If you could go back in time and give advice to yourself when you first started off, what have you learned about the qualitative research process that you would lo- love to have known from the very start? I think I might have appreciated understanding just how much work it is to go through transcripts of interviews. It is a lot more debilitating and, and, and trying than I had thought it was when I first started. And, you know, oh, yeah, I'll have that done next month. Uh, became, uh, you know, <laughs> four months later. It, it it takes a long time to be able to go through these things and it can be draining. So I think that would be one caveat I would have appreciated knowing earlier than having to experience that myself firsthand. <laughs> Do you have any suggestions for, particularly when researchers have collected such rich field data, whether it's you know, volumes of observations or transcripts of 40 interviews. How do you approach that? You What is clearly a long-term task of analysis that's so daunting to start? So there's a whole, there's a whole literature on how to do these things. But basically, I had relied on coding, which is, has been around from the 70s. I used a computer program instead of sticky notes. But I, um, I, I read the transcripts, hopefully with enough uh, mental capacity to actually uh, absorb the, you know, what was being said. And if I was do, if I had done that same interview, then I would be even closer to the data. So I might be able to remember some of the conversations. I would then code the conversations with subjects that I believed that that paragraph represented. And that, you know, you could uh, code a single paragraph multiple ways if they were talking about multiple things. But it is a, a long and drawn out process. And you, you might not be as reproducible in it because you might come up the next day and say, oh, my gosh, I would code that this. And the more that you go over your data, the more you're going to question, oh, my gosh, did I get this right? But there might not be a right that you're aiming for. It might just be be ensuring that you can present your argument with enough data that that substantiates where you're going that that you're looking for and and being authentic to the people to whom you were talking is is a better measure so one thing that i love about this particular paper is that you've 
pulled out just one particular, don't know whether you'd call it a theme or maybe a level up a category, that's just a, a simple, easy to explain thing that you noticed was going on, where you had lots of examples of that thing, and you could just discuss what was happening simply and clearly separate from the rest of the body of the research. Was, was that something that sort of happened naturally or...? So there were, when you're talking with people, you can get a multitude of subjects that you could possibly pull from any one interview, let alone 40. And I ended up doing 80, 85. So there were, you know, many, many different type, different ways I could have gone. So why, uh, why this one? I just found it fascinating. I just found the idea that people would not see the value in reporting into a reporting system, things that they could fix, absolutely really, really interesting. So that I think that's all I, I can really say about that. I, I just found it really something worth exploring. So just find something that is fascinating within the data and build the paper around that. Qualitative data often allows you this luxury. If if you are allowing the interviewee to talk, to really talk to you, if it's very structured and you are handholding the interviewee, you might not have that kind of luxury. There was, uh, there was a paper that I got out of this data that didn't even have to do with incident reporting. It had to do with double checking. And this was because I had enough information from people sharing how they were able to ensure patient safety without writing an incident report and double checking was one of the mechanisms that they gave. So um, that qualitative data can be lovely this way, just so as long as you can allow the interviewee to help drive the interview. So we might leave it there. Thank you so much for the time. You've, I, I really enjoyed that. Well, thank you, Drew. This has been delightful for me. I really appreciate it. So that's it for the interview. I'm interested to hear your thoughts, either directly about what Tanya had to say, or about your own experiences with operating or using incident reporting systems. That's it for this week. We hope you found this episode thought-provoking and ultimately useful in shaping the safety of work in your own organisation. Show notes can be found at safetyofwork.com, and send any comments, questions, or ideas for future episodes to feedback at safetyofwork.com. 